Hey, Ms. Ken. I'm with here with co-founder of Staking Rewards, Merkel Schmiedel. And today we have with us the guy who founded one of the fastest growing crypto data aggregators, Nansen. Welcome, Alex Svanovic. Let's jump right into some lightning round questions here, guys. And Alex, what was your first investment outside of BTC and Ethereum? Oh, I said Ethereum as well. I think it was Kyber Network. All right. That's, that's a good one. And uh, what are you saying is currently the most underrated crypto project? Judging by all the FUD on Twitter, maybe it looks rare. Hmm. Okay. And which alternative crypto data aggregator inspired you the most outside of Nansen? Ah, that's a really hard question. Uh, I think maybe, did you say crypto data aggregator? Correct. Honestly, I don't think there were any good ones around before Nansen was created. I, and I don't, I don't mean to slam anyone else. I just literally don't think there was anyone. I didn't use anyone at least. All right. And like, who in the crypto industry do you respect the most? Or like, who, who inspired you on your journey? Hmm. Um, I think, I mean, it's a boring answer, but probably Vitalik uh, for a few different reasons, like obviously creating Ethereum. But the fact that he's managed to withdraw himself from the project as well is quite impressive, I think. Not, not a lot of leaders managed to do that successfully. And I believe at this point, every guest we've had on the show names Vitalik. So he is a quite inspiring figure in this space. <laughs> and uh, uh, what percentage of your portfolio is staked? Huh. I guess it depends a bit on how we define it. So, so percentage of Ether or percentage uh, overall of... Overall coins that you have, what, what uh, amount <clears throat> are you participating? Uh, I think less than 10%, less than, less than 5%, okay. unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And what is an activity you do to relax from, from wild crypto markets? Yesterday, I was playing Rocket League for the first time. Uh, so I just moved into a new place and uh, ha have a Nintendo Switch set up. And that was actually pretty relaxing, I have to say. It's a good way to disconnect from everything and just focus on playing a video game that has no meaningful purpose. There you go. It's always a good way to disconnect a little, play some uh, Rocket League, maybe some FIFA too. And uh, <laughs> today yeah. we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about Ethereum staking, DeFi staking, crypto data aggregators, and more. Um, as a note here, today's episode is sponsored by Lido Finance, and Lido is the market-leading liquid staking solution. With Lido, you can stake Ethereum, Solana, and Terra while keeping full liquidity via staking derivatives. And these are the staking derivatives you can use in multiple DeFi applications to generate additional yield. So a lot of opportunity going on there with Lido, guys. Be sure to check out Lido Finance. All right, Alex. And now we're getting into some of the long-form questions. So what is the most interesting data that you regularly check at Nansen? I typically check uh, NFT data these days. So I will look at what are the NFT collections that are hot right now, uh, what's, what's pumping. But also there are a few NFT collections that I regularly just visit to see how they're developing. So some of the blue chip ones like Bored Apes uh, is pretty interesting because it's maybe at this point an indicator for like the whole NFT market. Um, 
I look at some of our uh, NFT indexes uh, as well. So we have a blue chip index that, that I use to, to follow how the NFT markets are going. And then it's also really good to look at smart money uh, indicators. So for example, which tokens are being accumulated by what we call smart money uh, and which tokens potentially they might be selling as well. So we, we have this land, I think the landing page of the nonsense account is pretty much like the main stuff that I look at uh, every single day. Uh, also like capital inflows into new smart contracts uh, under the hot contracts tab. So yeah, these are some of the things that I would check on like a daily basis. That's cool. Have you actually like checked out or like, are you into like NFT staking? Do you know any, like, have you, have you looked uh, into that or like, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. I have to say I'm a little behind on that, uh, but I do think there's some interesting stuff that you could do there. Um, so for example, I could imagine certain access rights you could actually, if you stake the NFT, then it's a little bit easier to manage uh, the, the accesses uh, for you know, whoever the, the staker is. And I guess another use case would be to actually generate some kind of token or yields on the NFTs that you do stake. Uh, but yeah, actually, you know, it would be nice to ask the question back to you if you know of any like projects that, that you've seen, um, because I think I think there's something interesting there, but I haven't seen that many applications of it yet. Yeah, I think most of them are still like just like general like like you get extra perks and benefits from staking NFTs in the protocol, like even even additional yield and so on. Um, I've seen some of that, so yeah, there's yeah. certainly some. Yeah, um, and then like. You also have like uh, quite like obviously nonsense like you you focus primarily on Ethereum data um, and then Ethereum staking is coming up soon. So uh, like, do you have any like interesting takeaways looking at the the nonsense data for Ethereum staking and like staking inflows and so on? Yeah. So we actually you mentioned Lido as a sponsor and we have a Lido um, dashboard actually that that tracks uh, how much ETH has been. So there are a few different dashboards there, and actually some of them are public, uh, so you don't need to have an Austin account. So maybe one example is the Lido dashboard. So you can find this at pro.nansen.ai slash Lido, and you can see how much Ether has been deposited into, into Lido, and it's, I think, around 1.9 mil uh, Ether, which is an insane amount. Uh, not To be honest, not something I expected um, First time I heard about Lido, um, because you know it's at this point become a, a massive staking provider. Uh, and in this dashboard, you can also see you know what are some of the addresses that have deposited the most ether into Lido or have used Lido to deposit ETH. And for example, the second biggest one is Three Arrows Capital. Uh, and if you go further down the list, and so they've staked fifty thousand ether in one transaction. The largest one is 62,000 Ether, which uh, either is also three arrows capital, but with a different wallet that's not labeled, but more likely it's uh, some other large entity. Uh, and then there, you also see Nexus Mutual who have staked uh, Ether. You see Gnosis um, who uh, staked Ether as well, I think 22,000. And then another three arrows capital. So there's actually some really big names who have used Lido to deposit funds, even if it is like a decentralized staking um, um, product 
you know, you, you can also obviously use it if you're a larger player who in theory could be running their own nodes, right? So that's pretty interesting. Uh, the other thing is we have a dashboard uh, called ETH2 deposit contract. This is uh, also available for free, although the URL is a bit more clunky. pro.nonson.ai slash ETH2-deposit-contract. Uh, and there you can see that almost 10 million Ether has been deposited in total. In other words, uh, a huge proportion, almost 20%, is actually Lido. So this is pretty interesting. And uh, if you go past Lido, you have Coinbase and Kraken as the other two uh, large entities that have been depositing Ether into it. Of course, with those entities, in theory, it could be them, their own assets, but more likely it's the assets of their customers. So yeah, those are some of the takeaways that you can see right away in Nansen. Yeah, very interesting trends to follow uh, with, with definitely some big players involved there uh, with the inflows into the staking contract and the Lido products as well. I think um, the ability to stay liquid is top of the mind in all investors. And in, in when, when you have lockup periods that are unknown, like with the ETH 2.0 staking contract. Um, getting into the next question here. So staking is used as a concept by hundreds of DeFi projects without really any security modules, uh, like it is in Aave staking, for instance. What is your take on those specifically, uh, staking projects without security modules? Hmm. Um, interesting question. I think obviously there needs to be some kind of um, there. There needs to be some kind of mechanism in place in case things go sour, or in, in case uh, things go south. I don't have any strong opinion on how to implement that, but it seems to me that there are lots of good decentralized insurance products and, and platforms that could be could be useful uh, useful in in this uh, in this context. I believe, for example, Lido is at least partially insured on the assets that are owned there. I'm not exactly sure how the security module works for for Ave, but uh, so I, I wouldn't say I have any very strong opinions on that topic. Yeah, I mean, it works like an insurance. So you basically stake into an insurance pool. And if there are any shortfalls in the protocol, then the, the staked RV tokens um, function as like a um, as a way to bail out like um, any, mm. anyone um, who really lost money from depositing stable coins into RV, for example. That's that's how it is. But yeah, I mean, okay, that, that, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, you you do want to ideally have some kind of fallback. Uh, of course, then someone needs to, um, you know, someone needs to be incentivized somehow to basically pick up the the bill for that insurance as well, right? Which I guess the stakers are doing uh, in the in the case of Ave. Um, yeah, so I think that makes sense. In the case of Lido, I think they're basically just paying for insurance with the DAO treasury. I think that's how it works. So that's a different model, but. Um, yeah, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, so it certainly is. Um, and then, so, want to touch a bit on like, um, like you, you mentioned like three arrows capital and Gnosis like depositing large amounts of, of money into the contracts. And um, how, how do you generally like categorize the behavior of whales at Nansen? Like, are, are there like certain clusters of people, or like do, do you cluster them? And what are the most common clusters like? I don't know, short-term traders, long-term investors, NFT collectors, or like what, what are the whale clusters? 
on, on Ethereum? <clears throat> yeah, so there are basically two types of labeling uh, we do at Nansen. One is entity labeling. And so this means we spe know specifically that this uh, address belongs to an entity. And so the example I just gave you with three arrows um, is, is one example. Or this address belongs to Coinbase or Kraken or you know, Lido, etc. cetera. Uh, the other category is uh, behavioral tags. So for example, we might not know who the entity is, but there are certain behaviors that we can observe on chain, which allows us to classify them. So for example, we have um, this umbrella term that we call smart money. And <clears throat> these are addresses that typically people are interested in following because they have done well in the past uh, when it comes to trading, investing, flipping NFTs, yield farming, and so on. And so under that umbrella, you have things like smart NFT um, minter, smart NFT hodler, smart NFT early adopter on the NFT section. And then on the DeFi section, you have things like smart liquidity provider. Uh, I think we also have a tag that's called smarter liquidity provider. I don't know if it, it's like an internal term that we use, but it, or if it's actually in, in the product as well. But the, the idea is that you can, you can look at how much yields that certain addresses have been generating. And instead of having to go out, go out on like crypto Twitter and Discord and talking to your social network on Telegram, you can just look at what addresses are doing on chain, right? Which is kind of the, the, the no BS uh, version. So uh, when it comes to whales, I mean, many of them fit into these smart money categories, right? Uh, because that's in many cases how they became whales, that they actually did really well investing in stuff. So, um, and then we have a few other uh, labels that we have historically used. I think the first one was like we had a Dex Trader classification, like uh, Dex Trader, Medium Dex Trader, Heavy Dex Trader, and Elite Dex Trader. We still have that but it's not as visible as it was in the beginning uh, because when we first started Namsen, we didn't have that many labels. So pretty much like any address that was active with DeFi got the medium Dex trader label. So it became kind of a meme uh, over time. Now, thankfully we have a, a bit more variety and, and you know, a lot more coverage both on the entity side and the behavioral tags. But yeah, so, so those are some ways that, that uh, or some different types of labels we have. Definitely. And, and thanks for giving more insight on the smart money tag there. I know Jamie T from the comment section was, in, was interested as well. Um, and that goes for anyone listening or watching right now. If you have questions for Alex, feel free to ask the questions in the chat section and we'll address those at the end of the show here. Uh, so Alex, what percentage, what average percentage of stable coins are in the biggest whale wallets or portfolios these days? Is there a way to create some global metric out of this average percentage of stable coins? Yeah, that's, uh, I don't actually know the number top of my head, but we do have something similar, which is basically if you take the aggregate portfolio uh, of all the smart money addresses, how much of that portfolio is in stablecoins? So may maybe that's the same thing you're asking, but uh, that's something that we have tracked for a while. And last time I checked, it was sitting at around 10 to 12% or something like that. Um I don't have the number in front of me right now. I might have changed. That was a few days ago. I think I saw it. Um, so, and and it's interesting. It does it does stay relatively constant, but it does also trend in certain directions. And 
we want to do a bit more backtesting to see how it correlates with other metrics. For example, you know, could this metric help predict um, overall um, market movements, right? Is it sort of a gauge of sentiment? That, that was the initial uh, impetus for rolling out this index. And so I think as we refine the smart money segment and as we do more backtesting, we'll be able to say more categorically that, you know, these types of indices can actually be used to um, may, can maybe be used uh, to inform investment decisions as well to some extent. Um, but it's still pretty early days. And so we haven't really fully backtested all this stuff yet, but it's actively being worked on right now. Yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, you, you could probably also just look at the, the total stablecoin market cap compared to the crypto market cap or something, but it, it would never be yeah. as, as interesting as like looking at like the whale wallets and see like, okay, are they, um, like, do they think this is a market or like, are they scaling out or in? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's really interesting to compare kind of, if you just take, you know, the whole market, what is like the, the aggregate portfolio of the total crypto market on say Ethereum, for example, what percentage of that group will have, you know, what percentage of that is in stable coins. Now this is actually much harder to do in practice than it is in theory because you know, there's all sorts of like sort of scammy tokens out there and like you have to build out proper filters, but you could do something like maybe let's look at, you know, whatever uh, is whitelisted on CoinGecko or something like that. And if you then, as you were saying, like, that's interesting. But if you do the exact same thing, filtering it down from, say, 200 million wallets just to 4,000 wallets or something like that, how, how does, how do, you know, how is it different? And does the smart money sort of act in a different way than the rest of the market? And we've done some attempts at this before. So we did, we did something similar where we tried to look at the, the overall portfolio, like which coins are more commonly held by smart money versus the rest of the market. Um, it was more like a proof of concept. So I don't think the results, we, we, uh, the analysis we did back then had any very interesting findings. It was more like, I vaguely remember that there, was, there were a few stable coins that were preferred by smart money investors. I think some of the Aave Stable coins, meaning that they had locked, uh, say, Dai or USDC in in Ave was uh, was one that stuck out from memory. Um, and then, yeah, there were a few other ones. Uh, but this this notion that you can compare what the smart money is doing with the rest of the market, I think, is a pretty powerful concept. Yeah, certainly, and it makes sense. I mean, Ave like probably most of the whales would rather deposit in Avi than like other smaller lending protocols or something because they just have the, the massive volume that serves to whales. Um, yes. And so like, let, let's say you, you have a friend and like he, he wants to invest like a, a big sum of, of money like into stable coins and earn yield. Like he doesn't want to go into crypto. Like what, what would you like, what would you recommend someone to like to earn yield with like, let, let's say like a hundred thousand, like not financial advice or anything here, just like, um hypothetical real like, hy hypothet hypothetical friend right hypothetical friend uh, yeah exactly like, hy like... Hy hypothetical friend asking for entertainment uh input <laughs> uh so so you, you said they if they don't want to do crypto you mean like if they if they they're okay with stable coins though right right or, yeah, they, yeah they they want to invest but they don't want the price price fluctuation from crypto they just want like to earn yield on stable coins because they heard like okay stables are much better than your 
your local bank account. So, um, mm. what, I mean, what, yeah, yeah. Hmm. this is, uh, I'm going to give very, uh, uh, the purists on, on crypto might get upset with me if I give this answer, but take, taking it to consideration that there is a UX challenge here as well, right? Like you have to get $100,000 into crypto somehow. I think honestly, uh, they might, I mean, there's also risks involved with this, but using C5 platforms like centralized uh, finance or like, uh, you know, centralized exchanges effectively or lending platforms might be the easiest. Now I'm talking about the easiest way to get started where you have decent yields and uh, you don't have to worry too much about, you know, managing your own keys, for example, which is a, it could be potentially an issue for someone who's never used crypto. And then I don't know if I should mention any of the, the names um, specifically, but um, I mean, it gets a little bit boring if I don't, right? So, so I, guess, I guess like some of the platforms then you have to do your own, you know, research on these and the risks involved, et cetera. But I think there are platforms like Nexo, for example, uh, BlockFi now has had some issues in the U.S. when it comes to regulators there, uh, the SEC and so on. Um, but uh, probably, you know, using one of those, maybe using uh, a centralized exchange that will give you yields, like could be FTX, could be Binance. I haven't looked at the most recent rates. But this is like for someone who is not a crypto native, you know, they've got a decent amount of money that they're willing to put into this and they want to get yields. They don't want to mess around. They don't want to expose themselves to uh, smart contract risks or um, custody risks when it comes to managing their own keys. Like, honestly, that's probably what I would recommend uh, to get started. And then if they want to get more into the deeper stuff, maybe then you can say, well, if you have some funds on one of these places, now you can actually withdraw it, right? You can withdraw it as USDC. And then you start getting them onto the rails of crypto after that uh, that's probably what i would recommend and it kind of mirrors the uh, onboarding flow that many people have had in crypto where they start with coinbase for example and of course the crypto purists will not be like happy about that advice but in reality you know that's an easy way to get started it might not be the most fee efficient way to get started but it is very easy to to, to start there and then go down the rabbit hole afterwards yeah, and, and you make a good point about this uh, fiat to initial onboarding into crypto aspect, the UI, UX design and process not being totally efficient. And there has to be a multi-step process there for someone newly entering into the market and starting to earn the yield there. But uh, anything's better than the uh, less than 1% they're giving in savings accounts these days. So I'm sure it's going to be worth the risk they take. Um, so talking about Ethereum trends here. So thousands of new builders have joined the Ethereum ecosystem over the past years ETH Denver recently happened or is happening and was a massive event. How do you see the rate of innovation in the Ethereum space currently? All the people there building, just copying each other, trying to build a quick cash grab, or is it truly bearing long lasting innovative concepts? How do you see that curve developing? Yeah, I, um, there's no doubt that Ethereum has, um, one of the strongest developer ecosystems in the world across, you know, across industries, not just in crypto. So if you look at it, the rate of innovation in the last, I mean, depends how far back you want to go, but even just the last like two, 
maybe, maybe three years, <clears throat> there are so many concepts that have been introduced and concepts that have been created on top of those concepts, right? If you think about uh, DeFi, even something like liquid staking with Lido is, is like the concept is actually kind of strange if you think about it. Like first you had, you had to come up with staking, which, okay, is, is fair enough, is, is a concept you can understand, but it's a little bit convoluted and confusing. And then now suddenly someone is saying, hey, you can actually create some financial instrument, if we could call it that, or a financial product uh, where you actually can make that staking piece liquid and you can trade it. And by the way, you can also provide liquidity for that and the stable asset that it, that's underlying it or the stable pair rather uh, of those two assets like stake Ether and Ether on something like Curve and all this stuff you can just do permissionlessly, right? That's... I mean, there's a lot of innovation just there, right? And so then there's no doubt there's been an insane amount of innovation in the last few years. Um, and then the question, I guess, now is with a lot of hype, especially from, I mean, the DeFi summer in, in 2020, I think definitely kicked off this run of sort of copycats and kimchi swap or all this stuff that was, that was going on uh, after after SushiSwap's uh, vampire attack, which I think actually SushiSwap was a very, very creative and innovative fork um, on, on Uniswap. And then of course, people forking SushiSwap with sashimi swap or kimchi swap or all these different things, right? Maybe, maybe less innovative. Um, but then, so I think that there's also an optimistic way to look at the clones and the forking and all that stuff. And that is that it's kind of an evolutionary process. And you see this in the NFT world as well. Someone like literally will take a concept, copy it, and then they will make very slight tweaks. But this is very similar to an evolutionary process where basically you have these slight mutations and it's survival of the fittest. Like a lot of these NFT collections, a lot of the yield farms will just disappear, they'll go to zero. But some of them will stick around and maybe those mutations that people at some point thought were stupid made sense, right? So I think there's kind of like, that's the, the higher level, almost like macro interpretation, even if the micro behaviors of the fork, forkers are uh, not necessarily with the highest uh, aspirations or the best intentions, even that behavior can perhaps create something that is innovative through experimentation like very, very rapid experimentation. Um, so I think that's like the glass half full way of looking at forks and, and clones, uh, both in the DeFi space, NFT space and so on. But uh, there's, a, there's so much stuff that goes on. I think um, on the, uh, like if you can call it almost like, it's not literally layer two, but like later versions of DeFi projects that build on some of the building blocks of earlier DeFi. So things like options protocols and then, you know, um, leverage trading of protocols, which, which uh, like perpetual swaps and things like that, which can build on top of lending protocols. Like there's an insane amount of innovation going on there. But I think what is very unique about crypto is that it, it, it has this composability aspect and permissionless aspect which means that the innovation can happen exponentially faster because people can build on the stuff of other people. And so that's why I think that's also what attracts a lot of smart developers to the space 
And maybe one last thing I would add, uh, you shouldn't forget the hackers and people that do exploits, right? Like these people, you could argue, similar to the, the people forking and cloning stuff, they're doing something which is maybe maybe bad or ill-intentioned in at the micro level, but it, it makes the whole ecosystem more anti-fragile as you have these attacks and people uh, have to make their own platforms more robust. So I think like there's, there's a lot of reasons why I think you have tons of smart people flocking to this space. It could be just because they want to fork something and they understand the technical stuff behind it. They want to make a slight mutation to it. It could be because they want to build on top of all this really new infrastructure that's being built out in real time by other smart developers. It could be because they want to exploit those products and make a lot of money. And in a way, that's a good thing as well, depending on how you look at it. Um, so, so I think there's no doubt that this is, um, this is a real, I don't know what the, what the term I should use, but I think this is a definitely um, a breeding ground for very, very bright and capable developers. Yeah, I love that analogy too, like the evolutionary process a la Charles Darwin, basically like things just like, yeah, new new mutations coming up or like innovations coming up and either they're being adopted or not. And it doesn't even like, they don't need to be successful, but it can just be something that other people see and learn from and develop further and so on. Um, yeah, even there's probably sometimes also like a lot of innovation maybe like getting lost in like okay because if something is not successful and even it can be innovative it may not be adopted or something but yeah it just like it starts the the process of like further developing ideas and so on so yeah that, that's beautiful about um yeah the whole ecosystem everything is open and transparent and everyone can learn from each other um And yeah, I, I also see that most strongly in like the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, so I wonder like, what, what do you think on like the Ethereum ecosystem? What, what does it take to like, to truly take off? Let's say like Ethereum 2.0 is launched. Um, what is, what's the, what's the missing piece for like, for Ethereum um, to really get like real world adoption and, and really, um, yeah, catapult to, to like a new level of adoption? Yeah, uh, so I think in the last few years, um, one thing that is a, a bit sad with the, I mean, not, not just a bit sad, but it's really sad with the, the Ethereum ecosystem, if we, if we can call it that. Um, the, you can also define the, the broader Ethereum ecosystem, almost like the, like the broader Manhattan area or something, broad, broader New York area or something like that. Um, But and you could include EVM chains, right? Like is Avalanche part of the Ethereum ecosystem because you have Ethereum developers, Solidity developers who can roll out stuff on Avalanche as well. And then there's L2s and so on. So um, I think um, yeah, there there are a few there are a few things to to consider here. Probably the main thing that I wanted to, to mention initially about something being sad is that. Ethereum has kind of lost the new user, like the newbie, um, at least temporarily. Hopefully it's temporary. But if you recommend someone getting into it, Ethereum, and they like the question you asked me earlier, that, that's with someone who has $100,000. But if someone has like $100, there's no way you can recommend that they start using Ethereum. 
unfortunately. That was not the case in 2019, for example. You could start using Ethereum for like like some tens of cents or, or a few dollars if you're doing something more uh, interesting. And now there's just no way you can, the barrier to entry is just way too high. So they are kind of forced to go to other chains or they have to start using layer twos. And the big hope is of course that layer two uh, solutions will become more, will make it more accessible to new users who might not want to spend $50 to make one transaction on Ethereum. And by the way, all of this stuff, I'm a huge Ethereum fan, right? So this is not like thud or anything like that. It's just the fact, like if you speak with anyone who's new to crypto, you just cannot really recommend that they start with Ethereum anymore. Um, and so then we get back to the point I was making earlier that um, it depends what we define by Ethereum, right? So I, I guess it's pretty straightforward to also include the layer two solutions, right? So something like Arbitrum, uh, Optimism, um, ZK Sync. Um, and so, so these solutions, I think we're relying pretty heavily on those. Uh, that, that's, that's one thing. Uh, and, and with Ethereum two, I mean, at the end of the day, as far as I understand, like there's nothing in Ethereum two in itself that will magically solve, you know, the uh, gas, gas price and things like that. You still have to rely on, on layer two solutions. Right. So, so that, that's one thing. And then I, I guess, uh, of course there are other good things coming out, uh, through, through uh, Ethereum 2 rollout, the most notable one is, of course, that we're transitioning over to proof of stake. Uh, and this is a good good podcast to be talking about that uh, about that on. So the environmental, um, you know, again, that's another thing you can discuss, right? The envir- the actual environmental impact of uh, proof of work. But I think most people will agree that the way any way you twist and turn this issue proof of stake is still more environmentally friendly. And so, you know, at the very least, you'll be able to silence the critics who have uh, a lot of issues with proof of work. So I think that's like another big, um, big thing where that narrative, you can sort of regain, Ethereum can like go back and claim that narrative and say, hey, you know, all this FUD about NFTs and whatnot, you know, burning down the rainforest, um, is, is definitely no, no longer going to be an issue with proof of stake. Definitely. So many uh, different benefits coming from the upgrade to proof of stake. It's going to have profound effect. Uh, but speaking with the current situation, a user may turn to alternative layer ones that have cheaper gas fees. What alternative layer one do you think has the highest chance of success in the long term? We're talking like uh, BNB chain, Solana, Cosmos ecosystem. What do you think, polka dot? Yeah, so so first of all, disclaimer: I, I would not claim that I, you know, have tried all of these uh, blockchains, and nor have I researched all of them. There's just too many out there. But um, I mean, I know a few things from looking at the data on some of the chains. Um, so something something like Avalanche. Uh, I actually a, f- a few of the chains that we also support these chains on Nonsense because of the activity that they have. We like when we consider which other chains we want to support on, on Nonsense, we started with Ethereum. The philosophy was nail Ethereum and then scale to other chains. Uh, and then if you look at Polygon, it has tons of activity. If you look at Avalanche, it has tons of activity. 
Uh, and the interesting thing about Avalanche is that the number of transactions like have been increasing pretty much linearly uh, since mid 2021, but the total gas pr- uh, costs for users has been pretty constant actually due to some optimizations that were made um, uh, late 2021. And so I think Avalanche is an interesting ecosystem, uh, also Polygon, Phantom, and then there are some other chains that are still a lot smaller, um, like CeeLo, for example, which is kind of a different thing where they focus more on mobile, um, which is still very, very small compared to these other chains in, in terms of activity. And, you know, you, you also have BNB chain, which I think in many ways, like open Pandora's box after uh, in 2020 with DeFi summer and when sort of the demand for Ethereum kind of spilled over and just like went into all these other chains. That's kind of how I visualize what happened. And BNB chain was kind of the chain that first showed that, hey, you can just make another EVM chain and you can pretty much fork Ethereum. And, and it wasn't the first chain to do this, right? It was Tron did this in the past as well. But this was the first one where you actually saw real usage with millions of uh, active addresses and so on. So I, I think like that whole EVM uh, ecosystem, and I've talked most about EVM chains for now, there's a lot of activity there that's organic. And, you know, again, you can debate what's organic and not, but definitely uh, chains that are worth looking at. Then I think there are some non-EVM chains as well that are definitely uh, having traction and, because of that, we are working on integrating them uh, with Nansen as well. And so the two big ones, I would say, are Terra and, and Solana. Um, and so I don't have the stats on Terra users uh, top of mind. I know for Solana, we're talking maybe more than, probably more than 2 million users. Again, we don't know if you know all of those are individuals. Uh, but through stats from Phantom, for example, which is the main browser-based wallet, uh, and now also a mobile wallet, um, we know that there's, uh, you know, at least 200, uh, sorry, at least 2 million downloads, I think, if I'm not mistaken, around the, around that number. And pretty much all of them are using Solana, right? So so that's another one that's really interesting. It makes different trade, trade-offs um, compared to Ethereum, of course. You know, it has much higher throughput, much lower transaction uh, fees, but a very different... Um, a different model overall on like how, how to uh, run a blockchain. I don't know enough about Polkadot. And in a way, I kind of, maybe I'm very myopic here, but I kind of see that as, an, as, a, as a little sign that maybe it's not as big. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe there's uh, a lot of Polkadot users somewhere in the world. Someone asked me about Filecoin today as well, and I kind of have the same feeling. I have not really spoken to any Filecoin users, uh, but maybe I live in my own bubble. So I, th- I think like there are some non-EVM chains like Solana and Terra, and there are several EVM-based chains. By the way, I put I put Avalanche in that category, but it's a bit more nuanced, right? Because they have a C chain, which is EVM compatible, but they can also have they have other chains and they have subnets and so on. So it's a bit more complex there. Yeah, great points. Solana definitely has one of the highest users. Um, and that's also what they're targeting, I think. This is really, it plays well. I don't know what the 
claims are for like other chains. But yeah, I, I'm I'm very sure Polkadot is not used as much as Solana. Um, so like, I mean, you guys the... would also yeah, uh, as well because. Can you guys hear me now? Um, yeah, we hear you. I think the connection was just a bit slow there from your video, but ah. hearing, hearing you well now, no worries. Um, I asked yeah. you about your perspective of state, right? So, uh... yeah, I, I think the connection is a bit chopped off here, right, Ken? Yeah, I think so, Alex. It's uh, chopping in and out. Let's see if we can get a restable connection there. Yeah, but and anyway, I, I think I got your question, Alex. Um, you were asking like, what do we think has like the highest adoption? Kind of, I mean, that right? Like, which which chains are like used like mostly? Um, and I would definitely agree with Solana. And um, it's interesting, like, because there are different staking concepts, um, and even something like um, Cardano doesn't have like a lot of smart contract usage or anything, but there, there's a lot of like, there's a big staking ecosystem around it and a lot of validators. Um, and just like from the amount of like unique delegators, um, Cardano is definitely like much, much more used than Solana, but obviously like there, there are no smart contracts or anything. So that, that's a different story. And, um, it's much easier to build on Solana and so on, but just from the the staking ecosystem itself, um, yeah, like this often di diverges a lot from like um, the actual like smart contract usage or something, which is pretty interesting. Um, and yeah, so maybe maybe I can take the chance to ask uh, you. Can you can you hear me better now? Is the connection a bit yes. better? Okay, much better. So yeah. so I like to make fun of Cardano on Twitter. And it could be because I don't know enough about it. But do can you do anything else on Cardano than like stake? I mean, or or like how how does it work? Like, can you can you actually do anything with it? Um, that's a very good question. I don't think you can do much with it. So um, I think all the critiques are definitely um, they they have their their right to be there. Um, but I mean. I think there's just like they they do have smart contracts and they recently had like one I think uh, like a, a Dex or something which hit like one million in TVL or something so it's not much in TVL but at least they have something uh, that hmm. seems to be working um, but yeah I'm 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 not using it I I can't I don't have more details on it as well but it seems like it's it's very very slowly picking up I don't know what the growth rate is there I think other networks are still like they have more momentum, even something like a, a near protocol or something. They, um, mm -hmm. They're growing at a, at a faster pace than Cardano, I think. Even they are like at the same stage of kind of um, rolling out their, their actual usage and utility. Mm. Yeah, just to give some numbers on uh, total stakers, sourcing this from stakingrewards.com. For Cardano, we're looking at 1.17 million total stakers. Solana about 400,000 total stakers. So um, at least people know how to stake in those ecosystems. And in Cardano's case, once they finally figure out, you know, efficiencies within a smart contract uh, capabilities, you might see more applications pop up and you have a big pool of people that theoretically already know how to participate in staking. So I wonder if, you know, they finally get the smart contracts together, applications built, you're going to see a lot of participation. 
in DeFi projects on Cardano, for instance. Uh, but definitely interesting numbers to look at, interesting participation from users uh, in those layer one protocols. Uh, but going into the next question here, Alex. So uh, what would you recommend to someone who's relatively new to crypto? What is the best way to get them involved in learning, uh, basically how to start participating in staking, for instance? Yeah, so what I normally recommend is, um, so first I think you have to get a Twitter account if you don't have one. And basically, you know, you can, you can start trying to follow a few other people in the crypto space. I mean, there, and there are some extremely funny accounts to follow as well, right? Like uh, Kobe um, and uh, the Crypto Dog. There's a, like a bunch of great accounts out there. And then, frankly, you can just look at what other people are, which accounts other people are following and start like following the same people. Like if you find my uh, Twitter account, which is A Svanovic, then you can just see who I follow. I think I follow around 1,000 people. Click on a few of those, and now you've kind of cold started your own Twitter uh, following. Um, so Twitter is a very important channel for information just, just to get started. And then you can start you can actually start just like DMing people, which is what uh, I remember doing in 2017. And I actually made a lot of internet friends uh, just in DMs with other people. Either they would DM me or I would DM them. And it's funny how open-minded and happy to chat a lot of people are. Uh, this Right now, unfortunately, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't be so active in DMs anymore, but it was very nice when I had a bit smaller account back in the day. Um, but that's, so that's something that anyone can do and like just reach out to people who uh, are, are like in this crypto Twitter um, space. Then from there, I think it's uh, good to start following some kind of longer form pieces to educate yourself. Like Bankless, I think is a good source. Um, there are a few other good like Substacks. Um, there's one uh, by Joel John that I think is good. Um, and then I think eventually you want to try to get into a few Discord channels, maybe with some, some DAOs and just try to engage with people. And of course, you should be careful not to get scammed or anything like that, but just to kind of learn and, and see what people are doing. Um, I think that's all of these things are good. And actually, when I set, when I set up my own ETH2 uh, validator um, to stake ETH, uh, I spent some time in uh, one of these discords to actually troubleshoot and you know uh, get some some of my questions answered so i think that's uh, that's relevant for for staking it's relevant for basically anything that has to do with crypto and and then you sort of expand from there it's like you sort of branch out and you go down different avenues from there but that's kind of a good core to get started with like you get a twitter account you follow some crypto twitter uh, people you start jumping into a few of these discords, try to avoid being scammed by some random fake NFT collection or something. And um, yeah, get some long form content that you can follow to educate yourself. That's awesome, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to see like how, how helpful and active the communities are. Like you just randomly DM someone and like they, they have something like when you when you set up your ease validator or something, that's, um, the communities are extremely helpful. Um, so that's, yeah, right. that's, that's awesome. And 
So talking a little bit about the, the landscape of crypto data aggregation, obviously you, you've built like a, a, a massive industry leading tool that Nansen, um, like what do you think will the future look like for, for crypto data, crypto data aggregation, crypto data businesses in general, like let's say for the like five years from now, where do you, where do you as a company and like personally also like see opportunities and challenges? Yeah, I think, first of all, the pie is growing. So there's going to be room for lots of different models and lots of different companies that operate uh, both at the kind of universal level, if we can call it that, and also at the niche level where you're looking at a specific pocket um, of crypto activity. Uh, I think uh, in, a, in our case, we've started with on-chain data. That's our bread and butter. And so, uh, and what I would call enriched on-chain data. So you're, you know, you have these, behavioral labels you have entity labels on top of the on-chain data uh, i think it's going to get harder and harder as the world becomes more and more multi-chain i don't know if we're going to just have an infinite amount of chains probably not but even if you consolidate to like a handful of big blockchains you know you're probably going to see activity across those and you and each of those is going to be really hard to keep up with on its own so even in just the on-chain data domain, which is where we play today, um, there's going to be tons of work to be done, especially when it comes to attribution, which is what we, which is the fancier word for wallet labeling. So the attribution efforts you're going to have to put down as more and more people get active on blockchains will just grow, right? So you have to have really, really good systems. You have to, uh, you you can't rely only on you know, human input, obviously. Um, and that's also the case today. Like 99.99% of our labels are algorithmically generated. Um, so, so I think it's just going to get harder and harder. And it's even with layer twos as well, right? It makes everything even more complicated when it comes to on-chain data. But for a company like ours, I think we will also go beyond on-chain data. And so there's other types of information and data pieces that you would you'd want to have. Um, and uh, obviously looking at, for example, your website, like the stuff that you guys have, which is not a, uh, that's not a, something we cover, um, but it, it's just such, such a good example of something that's super useful, right? Like looking at staking awards of com. And I think I haven't even considered if we would start doing something similar. I don't see why we should if you guys are doing a great job at it. Like I generally tend to think that we should be adding data assets that um, that you don't really have good alternatives for today. And that's why I made that sort of maybe arrogant comment when you asked in the beginning, like what we're using before. Like frankly, I did there weren't any good products to do the stuff that we are doing today. And that's why we built it. So I don't really see us kind of going out to try to um, try to create stuff that already exists in the market. Like the reason we would create stuff is we if we don't see good enough solutions for it today. And so and and there are some areas I think can still be improved dramatically. I do think like news aggregation and also like longer form content. There are some okay solutions out there, but I think it could be a lot better. Also, if you tie it in with on-chain data and if you tie it in with crypto like market data there's a lot more interesting stuff you could be doing especially if you can try to make certain like predictions and inferences from all of this together then it, it starts getting really interesting 
and then um, market data as well. It's not something we focus on so much. So I think I think um, I've said this before. I think that the way Nomsta focuses on on-chain data is a bit like how Amazon was focusing on books first. It was just a really nice niche for them to focus on initially, but then you can grow and expand into other niches. And so I don't think even we will only do analytics, data and analytics. I think we will probably start moving into other things like social, uh, because there's still a lot of problems that we need to solve when it comes to social networks in crypto. We only use, or we primarily use channels like Discord, Twitter, Telegram, all of which are you know, highly centralized and non-crypto native platforms that we've just adopted. But you know, maybe we should have more crypto native social uh, platforms and maybe we can play a role in that. And similarly with transactions, if you're using Nonsen for your information and potentially some of your social network, it seems like it would be a good idea to also be able to do transactions in our interface. So I think there's like, there's a big, big area that we can uh, move into, but you know, the pie is really, really big. And I, and I think there's going to be a lot of different products and solutions that are going to be successful. And sometimes one product or company or project will pursue one path and another one will pursue the inverse path and they can both succeed. Right, they can both take different parts of the market. So, yeah, I think uh, that's a very broad answer, but uh, hopefully, yeah, shed some light on what I, I think about the topic. That's that's awesome. Did you see the recent, uh, like from EtherScan, they launched this feature where you can like private message like certain Ethereum wallets and stuff? Yeah, I did, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I can't say too much about it yet, but <laughs> let's just say. We, we felt like we got front run on that one but yeah uh it's 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 good though it's good i mean it's good for people to have options right um but yeah so stay tuned on that one mm. awesome and, and good transition into the next question here so uh w are there any new data points or new features coming to nensen down the line that you're excited about yeah definitely some other chains like solana and terra i mean in, Personally, I find it hard to engage with these chains and use them because I don't. I want to have that X-ray vision that you get by using Nonsense. So I don't like feeling like I'm in the blind, and so I think that's going to be going to be huge uh, for us and for hopefully for those ecosystems as well. Um, so that's one thing. There's a lot of cool stuff happening on the NFT front. We just released an NFT price estimator, which uh, effectively gives you a machine learning powered estimate of a specific nft so you can say hey my board ape is number 69 what's the current market value of that or the current estimated value or price of that nft and maybe it can it can help you if you're looking to sell it what you should place as a fair price uh, if you put it over up for sale on OpenSea, or maybe if someone's bidding on it you can check it in the nft price estimator to see if you think it's fair so that's, uh, and we're going to be doing more, like we're going to roll that out for, you know, 10, at least thousands, if not tens of thousands of collections. You have to train the model for each different collection. You have to verify that it is relatively accurate and so on. So that's pretty cool. And I'm pretty excited about that. And then uh, there's going to be much more uh, Web3 native features. 
So we just talked about something around social. I mean, that, that seems like it's a, it's a good area, but also just for convenience, things like logging in or more, more uh, easily tracking your wallet from connecting with your Web3 wallet, right? It, it just seems like that, that's something you should be able to do. In so the overall four stages that I've talked about a few times elsewhere is kind of, we started out as an analytical platform. Then we moved to become more personalized and personal in that you and I might be interested in the same thing. So we will be shown different things in the platform. Like you might care about some tokens and NFTs. I might care about something else. Then there's the social layer. And then there's the ultimately the transactional layer. So these are like the four stages at a high level. And so you can sort of, some of the specific features, we can sort of announce them ahead of time. Some of them we have to keep a little bit uh, under, under the radar. And then there's other things that maybe you can imagine within that framework and you can reach out to us and, and ask for it. Maybe we will implement. That's awesome. And actually, like, like how, how do you see yourself like com compared to like an, an ETA scan? Is it like, do you see yourself as a block explorer of some sorts? Like, I, I mean, ob obviously you are like people go and they, they explore like the chain uh, at Nansen. Um, But do you, do you think you will also like transition more towards like more raw data in general, or like it's it's really like you're going the path of like like en enriched data and like yeah you you mentioned not just data analytics but more going into the direction of other features, right? Hmm. Yeah, so I see Etherscan and Nansen as highly complementary. I personally think of Etherscan as an encyclopedia, whereas Nansen is a newspaper. So if you want to look up anything, you go to Etherscan, right? If you already know what you're looking for, or you're looking up a transaction, you're looking up an address. But if you don't know what you're looking for, and you just want to figure out, hey, what's going on in the world today, you would go to Nansen for that. But then, of course, you can drill down, right? If you discover something through Nansen, you can drill down to the individual address and so on. You can't actually go to the transaction. Like we don't have a way to visualize a specific transaction today, which is one of the main use cases for Etherscan, of course. So we're happy to just link to Etherscan for whenever we want to reference a specific transaction. But uh, I, th I, I think of Nansen's mission as surfacing the signal. And that's a bit different, I think, from the Etherscan's mission. And as I said earlier, uh, we can play very important roles in the ecosystem uh, with two very different models. And, you know, they're both important tools. And I use both every single day. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think the, the crypto data market is also, it's just at the, at the very start of what is possible um, because everything is on-chain, everything is open and transparent. So um yeah that's that's exciting uh big growth trajectory um for for any crypto data company i think and like uh just finishing up the episode here like one one last question um like wh what do you like in your opinion like where are the best opportunities for yield right now like across the entire crypto ecosystem um anything that you that you are looking at or like that you are interested in or like that you recently saw that is like, yeah, having, having those good yields for people like crypto native kind of. Yeah, I, I do have um, 
I do have one account that I that is basically public, um, which you can see in Nansen. Um, and so I do some stuff with that address. I, I wouldn't say it's the highest alpha address to follow, but uh, uh, one that I have been uh, yield farming from lately is um, um, is on Avalanche, actually, and it's called uh, Platypus, Platypus Finance. And uh, do your own research. I uh, will not... Uh, and, but I've been farming that one for, for a little while. And uh, I kind of like the concept because it's a very similar model, model to Curve, but it has some of the kind of um, the aspects of something like convex finance or something like that kind of rolled up into it as well. So the idea is very simple that you have to stake the platypus token to boost your yields from uh, certain pools. And the yields are just emissions of, PTP uh, or platypus tokens. And uh, it, you can take those platypus tokens, you can stake those and you get a voted escrow or VE PTP. And the more of those you have, the more boost the, the more you boost your yields. So basically like as you accrue more of these tokens over time, you can get higher boosted yields. And it's a product that any, I think any blockchain needs, just like stable, stable asset um exchange like curve has uh on on ethereum and actually on other chains as well and their model which is felt like one of those useful mutations that i talked about earlier um so yeah do your own research not the financial uh, advice could, could go to zero tomorrow we could all get rugged i have no idea uh, but uh, it's an interesting one that i've been yield farming uh, on a bit lately and then for a more meta advice on Instead of me mentioning specific names, I would definitely look at <clears throat> the hot contracts tabs or hot contracts features in Nonsense where you can see capital flowing into new smart contracts. That's like another great, that's actually how I found Platypus. I literally just saw it <laughs> in Nonsense as like the second highest inflow of capital, uh, uh, smart money capital, because you can qualify who the capital is sent from, right? And so that's how I learned about the Platypus Finance project and decided to put some stable coins into it. That's some absolutely amazing advice there. Follow the hot contract filter and look for the smart money as well. Kind of play off those two data points off Nensen. So uh, the yeah. proof is in the results coming from the data that you guys aggregate. So really good stuff here, Alex. And where can people go to follow you and learn more about the stuff you're working on with Nansen. Definitely go to nansen.ai for the website and you can read a bit more about it. Uh, thank you for putting it up there. Uh, you can also follow Nansen on Twitter, Nansen underscore AI. And you can find me as well, A Svanavik uh, on Twitter. Thank you very much for posting it there. So that's the best way to follow me. Awesome. Thanks again, Alex Svanavik, the founder of Nansen. And for everyone watching, you can check out previous episodes of Staking Mondays on YouTube and also Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to our channel, like this episode, share it around. And as always, guys, happy staking. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Mirko. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you.